And now it's uh, my pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Catherine Cruz. Catherine Cruz is a journalist and host of Hawaii Public Radio's The Conversation. She previously spent 30 years as a television reporter for KITV in Honolulu. She is also a co-founder of Pacific Islanders and Communication, a, a communication, a national nonprofit. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Catherine Cruz. Well, I'm very honored to be sharing the stage here with these wonderful climate experts, and we're all going to pick their brains tonight. Uh, I'm going to start out with uh, introducing everybody here. Uh, uh, Chip Fletcher is uh, here in the middle, is a, a geologist at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, where he serves as the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs. His research focuses on the impacts of past, present, and future sea level rise on island environments and communities. Uh, Robert Lempert here is a scientist with the RAND Corporation and director of the Party Center for Longer Range Global Policy and the, fu and the Future Human Condition. Yeah. <laughs> He's also a contributor to the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and his research focuses on climate risk management and decision-making under conditions of deep uncertainty. And Josh Stambro is uh, Honolulu's chief resilience officer and serves as the executive director of Honolulu's Office of Climate Change, Sustainability, and Resiliency. He previously served as the Environmental and Sustainability Program Director at the Hawaii Community Foundation. And Josh, I think I'm gonna start with you. Sure. Because I just saw you last night. <laughs> uh, when I got home last night, I jumped on my computer and I had a message from next door saying that there was gonna be this climate change meeting uh, in my district in East Honolulu. And I said, gee, I probably should go and find out what you know people are talking about. And so. Uh, Josh, it was a packed room, yeah, <laughs> a packed house, standing like room this. only. <laughs> uh, explain to folks what you're trying to do, because really the, the, the title of this uh, forum is, you know, what can Hawaii teach the world? But you're really out there talking to the community and trying to teach them about climate change. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, one of the things, um, it's, first of all, it's wonderful to be here. Does everybody know what a Zocalo is? So um, I traveled in, in uh, Mexico um, after high school, and every single city is laid out around a central plaza, a Zocalo. And so everybody, you know, when evening comes, it's the place where all the teenagers walk around in a you know, circle and like check each other out, and all the old folks gather in these little beautiful chairs that are bent in an S, so you're looking at each other, but you're sitting on opposite sides. Um, and it is this place where you actually connect, talk, share, see each other, um, and, and come together. So I love the name, um, and I, you know, it's tied to this concept of what we're trying to do around bringing people together. Um, you know, what can Hawaii teach the world is one concept, but what can we teach each other in real time around an issue that is developing in real time around us? I mean, this is an unprecedented sort of circumstance around climate change, and so a lot of us don't know. I mean, even experts on the, uh, you know, on the stage next to me, I'm the, I'm the one guy that's not a scientist, um, I have a law background, um, we don't know how this is going to shake out. And so we're sort of inventing it in real time, and the meeting last night was a packed house, um, similar to tonight, which is great, because people are really beginning to perk their heads up and, and say, you know, these guys have been saying, you know, this is coming over the horizon for 20 years, but now as the impacts begin to hit, people are, you know, really have a sense of urgency around what do I need to know, what can we do about it, um, and how can we act? And that's what the meeting was last night. We're doing a series of nine meetings around the island with different communities, every single, you know, geography um, around the island. 
to do a little information around what's happening with climate change, but then to get the mana'o of the different communities around what would you like to see us in what order do to make sure we can get to carbon neutral um, by 2045. And so we're include, including the community in that planning. We're developing a climate action plan, which is really the first step that every city, every county, every municipality takes um, to sort of first make sure you've got a baseline for how much emissions are we putting into the atmosphere every year, um, and then how do we cut that down as rapidly as possible. So that's the, the concept behind the, the community meetings we're doing. Um, and if you go to the website for the, the city office at resilientoahu.org, you'll see all the dates that are coming up. There's going to be six more of them around the island. And it was a really uh, interesting kind of a exercise that we did. We had kind yeah. of maps. It was kind of like a board game, uh, and it was mapping out the changes that we need to uh, make in order to meet the goals in 2025, tw uh, 2035, and 2045. Uh, so it, it was a really interesting exercise, and it was really kind of nice because there were families there. You know, there were young kids that were participating in this, so uh, it was a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Thank you for coming. And you did mention that uh, when the city is going out for bonds, that the practice now is that they're saying, oh, do you have a uh, a, a climate office, right? Talk about that. Yeah, so I mean, talk about kind of new unexplored territory. Um, you know, the city uh, and every city and every jurisdiction puts out, you know, bonds and you sell them on the market and um, bond raters sort of rate your risk and, and rate your ability to pay them back and they give you a rating, double AA, A, triple A, you know, um, and that's tied to a lot of factors. And what has happened in the last, um, year now because it was a, a year ago that Moody's, one of the bond rating uh, groups, came out and said, we, just so you guys know, cities, counties, we are going to start looking at how you're dealing with climate change in terms of what's the risk that you have um, with essentially, you know, paying these things back and what you're doing to mitigate the risk in your, um, in your city or your jurisdiction. Um, and so that was last November that they, they said they were going to do something. And then just a week ago, they sent out what I presume went to all the cities in there, you know, that they rate and said, do you have a climate action plan? Do you have a, some sort of sustainability plan? Um, what do you have in your capital budget that is hedging essentially against um, climate change and adapting to climate change? And so the folks that um, are the gatekeepers for you know, the, the money that fuels our economy and, and, and the city um, are really starting to take a hard look at how does climate influence the, the risk um, around, around these ratings. And that obviously gets a whole lot of attention when you start talking about how much do we have to pay back. Um, you know, if you went to get a mortgage on your house and they said, I don't know, how, how, how guarded is your house against climate change? You might pay 5% on your mortgage or you'll pay 3.5. You'd be thinking about how, how do I elevate, you know, how do I put solar on the roof and those kind of things. And so that's what we're thinking about now. Yeah, um, Rob, you, mm -hmm. your expertise is in climate adaptation, adaptation and right? And yeah. you've looked at uh, communities across the country. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What, what can we learn from, from what you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to pick up on the point that Josh just made about the, the, the bond ratings. I mean, when when you look across what's going across uh, around across the country and around around the world, um, and what Catherine's referring to is I, I've been involved in a lot of these scientific assessment reports, the IPCC, the National Climate Assessment, where uh, experts get together and you survey what's going on in the literature and try to put together, you, you know, in a, a crystallized document, so the summary of what's going on. 
is, is you're, you're starting to see that sort of thing all over the place, is that um, there's, there's stages in adapting to climate change versus just awareness that something is go, going on, and, and that seems to have percolated up. You look across the country, across the world, people really seem to be noticing that things are changing. And then you need to assess what the risks are, what, you know, what, what the challenges are. And I think when Chip, you, you've been doing a lot here on sea level rise, mapping out the effects of sea level rise. And then the next part are these climate action plans, uh, both on the reducing greenhouse gases, you know, reducing our, our footprint, but then also protecting against the, the change that's inevitably going to occur. And that's where we're just starting to see people moving into it. And there's just a lot going on, just in the last few years. Uh, Josh mentioned the bond rating agencies starting to try to get uh, climate into the plans. I've been involved in California, I, I live in Los Angeles, in, in two separate efforts to write state guidance for when the state invests in infrastructure, bridges, roads, um, what have you, how do they include climate change? And then how do we include climate change in coastal planning and, and other things? And so it, it's, so people are starting to do that, but at one level it's, it's, it's sort of simple to say, but you know, you go to a bond rating agency or you go to an engineer and they've got, it, engineers in some ways I find the most interesting. You know, engineers, uh, very technical people, very skilled people, um, but at some level, just very cautious, right? You know, because if you build a bridge and then it falls down, I mean, you know, that's not only bad professionally, you feel kind of bad about it, right? And, and so they've got this whole body of professional uh, information, lore, skill, uh, you know, knowledge, and you're taking this, and it always includes climate, because climate's important. How fast is the wind going to blow and so forth? But what you're doing is you're ripping out sort of this key idea, climate, what they've always done is you just go to a site and you see what the climate has been like for the last 50 years, 100 years, and that's what you use in all your calculations on how high the bridge is, what winds it needs to, to, under, uh, to withstand. And now you're saying, you can't do that anymore because the climate has changed and it's going to change more. And they go, okay, but what do we use? And you say, well, it's changing, but how much it's going to change over the next 50, 100 years depends on how much China how much coal China burns, and whether which one of these 30 models or some other model is right. And so you're asking people who do, you know, take lots of serious professional responsibility, or how do you do a bond rating, right? Mm -hmm. And change a fundamental thing that they've been taught and their profession is built around and do it differently. And that is a really hard challenge. And you can see the gears starting to turn you know, across the countries, people try to do that. And which is why it's so important that places like Hawaii and other sort of leading edge places are starting to try to do this thing, these sorts of things, so we can figure out how to do them. And in the last uh, few weeks, we've seen stories in the newspaper, one about the United Nations mm -hmm. uh, a scientific uh, panel yeah. on, on uh, climate change. Uh, and I think there was an article, uh, Chip, you authored a, uh, a report, a, a review about <coughs> sea level rise and how things are actually much worse than we thought. <laughs> if you can talk about that. <laughs> uh, yes, so in Sunday's paper, uh, McKenna Kaufman and I co-authored an op-ed. McKenna is the chair of the Honolulu Climate Change Commission. Uh, we wanted to get out a clear description of the sea level rise guidance that the Honolulu Climate Change Commission has issued. Uh, it is 
to plan for about one meter of sea level rise, a little over three feet by the end of the century. And associated with that, we're going to see high tide flooding that will be disruptive in nature, potentially occurring uh, over 20 times per year, although clustered around the summertime, before mid-century. So um, that was an uh, important, um, although somewhat technical, issue that we wanted to get out there. Uh, we also uh, propose that if you are going to invest in um, very expensive, long lifetime infrastructure, uh, let's say you wanted to build a nuclear power plant on the shoreline, you can't afford to get it wrong. We call that low risk tolerance. Um, plan for six feet of sea level rise because we're not sure how uh, West Antarctica is going to continue uh, to decay, whether it's going to be rapid or continue rather slowly as it is now. Um, and then uh, that was accompanied by Kem Lowry, former uh, professor and chair of the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at UH Manoa. And he uh, discussed in his op-ed a number of um, sort of categories of response to sea level rise, things that we can do. Um, so that was this past Sunday, but we also had published in uh, one of the nature journals called Scientific Reports, the modeling uh, methodology and the results uh, that, that were used in the state sea level rise report uh, that came out in December of uh, last year. And um, that was a wonderful thing that validated the incredible people that are in our research group uh, at SOAST, um, School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology at UH Manoa. Some just extremely talented scientists working on this problem and uh, getting it published in Nature was, was uh, very important. And compared to uh, the typical modeling that is done, which is called bathtub modeling, where you simply flood a uh, topographic surface representing your city um, with higher sea level and see how much of it is flooded, uh, we added uh, an erosion model of land loss under different scenarios of sea level rise. And we added the seasonal swell events that we have in Hawaii, North Shore, South Shore. Uh, and we found that the addition of these dynamic processes uh, in some cases doubled the amount of land that was subject to damage by sea level rise as compared to uh, this bathtub modeling. So that's what that was. And uh, it's a testament to some of the amazing scientists that you folks support uh, at the University of Hawaii. And the other article was about the UN um, mm -hmm. climate report, and you have worked uh, with that group as well. Yes, not on this particular report, but I have, yeah. So this is this report you may have heard about, about um, the implications, the challenges, and the implications of, of hitting a 1.5 degree centigrade target. I think it was, it was in the news a lot. So this, um, the background on that is the, uh, the, the Paris Climate Agreement, which was signed a couple of years ago, um, called for uh, countries to put together plans so that collectively the, the world could stabilize the climate at a two degree centigrade increase over pre-industrial times. And we can talk in a second about what those numbers mean because they're kind of deceptively small. But um, uh, but then the report Paris Agreement also said 
uh, had a stretch target, a stretch goal of 1.5 degrees, and then the IPCC, which is a international UN-sponsored international collection of scientists who come together from all around the world and, and write these reports. Uh, what 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 would be the benefits of coming going to 1.5 C as opposed to 2 C? and uh, what would be some of the additional challenges of doing that. So that's what this report was about. And, um, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's a very sort of catalytic and focusing moment. I mean, it's in, in some ways it's not, it's not surprising for the scientists who've been looking at this for many years, but, uh, um, you know, these numbers are actually really deceptive. You know, two degrees C, you know, the temperature between the time we, you know, you walk from the outside and inside, it's, it's much bigger change than that. And so, you know, how can half a degree make that much difference, right? But, but on a global scale over long periods of time, that's a gigantic number. Um, you know, what, when the world in, you know, many, many eons ago was two degrees higher and stayed that way for a long period of time, the seas were 10 meters high, right? And, um, and when we were six degrees colder, we had miles of ice on top of uh, North America. So, you know, half a degree is... 10% of the way between two gigantically different climates. And so when you gather up all the scientific evidence, not surprisingly, half a degree makes a big difference. But to hit that, um, the world, the entire world really needs to follow the sort of emission paths that Hawaii and other states have, few other states have committed themselves to, which is to go carbon neutral by the middle of the century. Um, and that's a pretty big challenge. And um, so that's what this report highlighted. And Chip, we were talking about this because it was like, when I read it, I was like, holy cow. <laughs> you know? and, and things are going to get hot until we really get on the same page and say, yes, we need to reduce um, our footprint. Um, the world is currently on a pathway towards three and a half degrees C warming by the end of the century. Uh, and projections from a number of economists are that the demand for new energy over the next two or three decades is going to sort of outcompete the penetration of renewable energy. So although renewable energy around the world is being deployed at near miraculous rates, at the same time there is a growing demand for new energy. And about half of this is coming from India and China whose populations want and deserve to enter the middle class. And as uh, this demand for new energy continues to rise, um, it looks like by 2040, the market share of fossil fuels to non-carbon sources of energy will be roughly the same as today. So uh, this basically says, right, 1.5 uh, is really not practical, 2 is not achievable, and we're on this pathway to 3.5 degrees C. So what's needed here is a war on carbon. This is an all-hands-on-deck moment. The Thank you. The entire planet needs to come together and go to war. I'm sorry for the analogy, but that's the sort of mobilizing uh, catalyst that's needed. And I found myself a couple of weeks ago suggesting that the armed forces of the United States and Canada and South America and the world be deployed as a human workforce to India and China to um, deploy uh, renewable energy, to build hydro plants, to put up the windmills that are needed. It's that sort of a 
um, challenge right now. And of course, you know, th this uh, dream is not likely to happen, um, but that's how I characterize the need. And the last thing I will say is that uh, the rule of thumb is that the world has to cut its carbon emissions by about 50% per decade. Uh, if we start at, in the year 2020, about um, 15 months from now, uh, and we begin to dec decrease our carbon emissions at 50% per decade, by roughly mid-century, we will be a largely decarbonized uh, world economy, and we stand a chance of stopping warming at 2 degrees C. Gets a little fancier than that, but <laughs> that's, that's the challenge we have. Well, Josh, what are we doing right here. I mean, last night at that forum, we talked about uh, jet fuel, green jet fuel, uh, that will be a part of our future. And you mentioned that United Airlines, I think, uses it right now on the flight to LA. Yeah. I don't know, maybe did you take United? I did, yes, 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 we did. Yeah. Did you know that fact? I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, I think it's important. We, we think about this at a global scale, um, but what we can do is at a local scale, right? And. Uh, people often ask, well, why is it even worth us trying in Hawaii when, you know, what happens on the continent or in India or China vastly outpaces what we do here? And I think it's a, it's a, it's a moral question, right? What is our, what's our kuleana to take care of our own footprint? And I think the history here um, is really important, which is that the United States and, you know, Western sort of you know, Europe has it's accounted for the vast majority of the carbon pollution that got us to this point. And I would state that um, the reason we are in this pickle is not our fault. The reason we are in this pickle is because several corporations have essentially put out science that is deceptive and they've run campaigns that are deceptive and have kept us in a place where the science was try, you know, trying to get out and wasn't able to get out we would be on a very different path, right? So I think um, we have a lot of responsibility in this and more than we can just put aside by saying, well, we're just a little bit Hawaii, what can, what can we do? Um, and I think we are doing some great things in terms of our goals. Um, you know, the Public Utilities Commission um, has, you know, sort of laid out some architecture. Um, the state legislature has laid out these goals. And, you know, what can Hawaii do? Hawaii can influence California in some ways. So we adopted the 100% renewable um, standard uh, for 2045. And then lo and behold, Jerry Brown, I think in September, mm -hmm. signed 100% by 2045, miraculously the same date with the same standard yes. as Hawaii did. Yeah. So we're the two. But then we're going to go carbon negative. <laughs> so they're always trying to one-up us. Yeah, okay. yeah, what can I say? Um, but I think, you know, the, the power of example is really important. And yeah, when we think yeah. about this 1.5 degree centigrade yeah. versus 2.0, the folks who were pushing for the 1.5 was the small island states. Yeah. And yeah. it gives me chicken skin to even think about. There are folks out there that are not on high islands like we are that have way more to lose from a sea level rise that have been pounding the drum on this and almost... Um, single-handedly have helped steer the moral conversation back to 1.5 um, as being, you know, keeping all of us in, in, you know, sort of check around, well, you know, who can we sacrifice? Who's expendable on this planet? What does it mean to have um, lost your entire homeland? And there's some really great, um, if you haven't, uh, Kathy uh, Gent Gentner, Gentner? Gentner? 
forget the name. Um, she, she does spoken word uh, out of the South Pacific, and it's just amazing, powerful stuff to think about. These numbers actually translate into really, you know, graveyards being upturned by the ocean and people having to lose um, their space. So I think there's a lot that we're um, accountable for, and that's what should motivate us thinking about how do we cut this new path um, and show that, that there is a way. I should say when we were in the green room, uh, Rob was impressed that we had this office of, uh, you yeah. know, no, yeah. sustainability and, and that you're, we had a chief resiliency officer. Yeah, well, thank, and, and thank these guys. Yeah, so, yeah you yeah. voted for us. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the, the office that is, you know, at the city and county of Honolulu, the Office of Climate Change, Sustainability and Resiliency, which is a mouthful, <laughs> but thank you because you've voted for the office um, and gave us that name, uh, is the only office in, at the municipal level across the entire United States that has the word climate change right up front in the title. And that is hugely important because I think the reason why Moody's and some of these financial entities are looking at this risk thing is because some jurisdictions like Miami and you know, Florida, they can't even say the word climate change. The politics is such that there is such an entrenched um, you know, opposition to the fact of what's happening they can't even begin to do risk mitigation because they can't address the issue. And so we're, again, in a privileged position in Hawaii um, that we, if we don't take this mantle and run with it, if we don't make you know, the hard decisions around, you know, yes, this will cost us a little bit, this will cost in the near term, but it's going to save us in the long term. Um, if we don't show that path, then it's going to be really difficult for other jurisdictions that, um, that are up against harder uh, challenges. And yeah. All I know is that it's getting hotter <laughs> and I don't have air condition, and I know there are fewer tray days <laughs> in the year, yeah. and, uh, and that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just wonder, you know, when we have uh, the issues like with the, the concern about the risk of, you know, what happens to Waikiki, mm -hmm. right? The Army Corps of Engineers wants mm -hmm. to increase the capacity of the Alawai Canal. There's money in the federal budget to try and move that faster, to jumpstart that. Uh, I don't know, where do we go with that? Well, what does your office think about that? Uh, uh, well, maybe Chip can speak a little bit about uh, Waikiki and, and what's uh, happening there. But, you know, the, the Army Corps proposed project is one of flood mitigation from Mauka, not from Makai. Um, but there's real concern around this. If the rain bomb that had hit East Honolulu in April had centered over Manoa and Palolo, you know, instead of $29 million worth of damage, it could have been a billion dollars worth of damage because you think about where all that empties out and how much infrastructure and, and, and where that is. Um, <clears throat> and so that project is really designed um, to try to mitigate, to capture more of that flow as it comes, especially up, up Malka, to capture it in, in sort of holding um, bays and then release the water slowly so that the streams can handle and it can kind of trickle out. There is a lot of... Uh, you know, as a resilience officer, chief resilience, resilience is really about how do you kind of get double bang for your buck. So, you know, building concrete walls to channel water is a very 1950s sort of way of thinking about how we do this. Um, there's green infrastructure that can help, but then there's also all this public benefit. You know, we could revitalize the size of the um, Alawai um, canal with, you know, bike lanes and kiosks and, you know, grassy areas and all that while still getting some of the elevation that you may need. Um, and I think, so that's how we're thinking of it is how do we take um, something that's necessary to really protect um, and make us more resilient here, um, but then how do we bring public benefit? Because we have this amazing opportunity right now where people are paying attention and we're going to pour 
you know, a lot of money into infrastructure around climate change. How do we take those dollars and make our lives and quality of life better as a result and not just sort of more hardened? And has the city had discussions about, you know, the what ifs if people don't want to see the wall? I know the money is going to increase the capacity, but then uh, what about raising Alawai Boulevard? Um, so I don't think there's been specific conversations around what you know, tactics you can use. I know the design that's out there has, is just a pure concrete wall. Um, and I think, you know, anybody paddle? Do, do have anybody paddle here? I mean, there's a lot of folks that, you know, paddle in the Alawai, and a lot of people think about the view plane from outside. Oh, you know, a high wall would block my view of the Alawai. Well, actually, you know, when I think about it as a paddler, it's that iconic, you know, view of out of the Alawai. So you want to move, if we're going to do something, you want to move the walls back away from the Alawai as much as possible so that you get the view planes out um, as, well, as well as in. And Chip, what do you think, just as far as the sea level rise, what do we do about Waikiki? So uh, I gave a talk yesterday to um, the Citizens Advisory Group for the um, Municipal Planning Association. These folks are um, concerned with all of the roads, county and state roads. And I did some research into Miami uh, Miami is uh, probably the leading city in the world, certainly the United States, dealing with sea level rise. Uh, they have invested um, almost half a billion dollars with a B in something like 880 pump stations. Mm -hmm. These pump stations uh, will take high tide water that comes up through the storm drains, they will take rainwater that comes down from the sky. Um, any sort of flooding, and they will uh, clean it, spin it, get the solids out of it, and then dump it into um, Biscayne Bay, which is a lagoon behind the barrier island of Miami. Uh, there are some amazing renderings of uh, elevated walkways and roadways, and in between two walkways, say there was a walkway here and another one over there, a mangrove wetland in there with a full mangrove ecosystem operating. Uh, and that used to be maybe a, uh, you know, a portion of a, of a uh, street or a neighborhood. Um, they uh, imagine sacrificing the first and second floors of their buildings to allow uh, flooding to move through, back and forth, uh, learning to live with water, if you will. Um, so I think there are some very uh, creative things that can be done. They are raising all their roads by two feet. Uh, there's some interesting photos of street side cafes that are down below the road here. <laughs> so you would sit at a table here and walk into Starbucks and come out and then the road sits two feet above that. They would catch the water that falls on the road from rain. It would go into a series of pipes and be dealt with. There's water that would fall in that patio that would be dealt with through drainage and pumps. It's about water management. It's about living with water, both from the sky and from the ocean. Um, so that's adapting in place. And a lot of us are thinking that someplace like Waikiki, Kaka'ako, the financial district, the investment, the population, the footprint of our communities uh, is too intense to simply uh, pick up and leave and the idea of retreat just doesn't make sense in these conditions So we're wondering how to adapt in place Now if you're going to raise a road underneath all of our roads are the sewer lines and the freshwater lines and the power lines 
So you don't just raise a road, you have to get all the departments that are dealing with all those different sectors together. Good luck with that. <laughs> and, and one of the amazing things that Josh's office is doing is creating these resiliency teams, which meet very frequently, and as people from all the different city departments come together, debate these things, discuss these things, and they're breaking down stovepipes, they are moving towards a truly interdisciplinary, integrated approach to this problem. So whereas a year ago I was, you know, I, would, I was wondering, when are we going to get going on this? Now I stand in amazement at the city and county of Honolulu and also the state of Hawaii, which has a climate commission, uh, at the progress that is happening. We are still in the easy phase yeah. of talking the talk. Um, walking the walk is, is coming next. Um, and I'm very confident that we will get there. But I think we've made incredible progress in the last couple of, last 12 months or so. And Rob, we were talking earlier, and you'd mentioned in the communities that you've studied that a lot of what works is that there's experimentation going on. Yeah. Yeah, so I want to go back to this, you know, leading by example mm -hmm. uh, idea. And, and I, I, I actually view, I mean, Chip, you painted, you know, this, you know, this staggeringly hard story of, uh, you know, what we need to do to reduce emissions. But, um, and it is certainly a, a monumental challenge. But um, it, I, I tend to think of it as more sort of a, a bottom-up sort of exercise. Um, I mean, obviously, we need the, you know, the, the top-down, you know, uh, you know as, a, as a planet, as a species goals. But um, it, the, the, the challenge is really how do we run uh, a society, an economy, in, in a way that's carbon neutral. You know, if, if you look at the, the graphs of what has happened, you know, globally over the last century, you know, we just had this amazing spurt of uh, population has grown, um, the, you know, the wealth has grown exponentially since the end of the Second World War, and it's all been powered by fossil fuels. And so no one has ever run a society as you know, as rich as the rich parts of our of, of the world are, you know, without fossil fuels, and and what we need to do is figure out how to not, you know, to have the quality of life not only for us but for the several billion people who still live in energy poverty, and do that without burning fossil fuels, and um, and it, you know, it that is not a trivial thing, and we need to learn how to do it, and it is a thing that will only, we will only learn how to do by lots of different jurisdictions, some small, some large, trying to do it in trying different ways. And so, you know, as you go through all the things that one needs to do, that Hawaii needs to do to go carbon neutral by 2045, or, or California, or, or, or wherever, um, you know, it, it, it's just, um, uh, I've been looking a lot at sort of the, the utility of, for electric utilities doesn't work if with distributed generation everywhere. And so you need a new model for utilities, which have been in business for, uh, for 100 years. The engineers need to work differently. Um, the, the, the banks need to work differently. So you, you, we really just need to work, and it's a systems problem, and we need lots of places learning and experimenting. Some of the things we do will work, some will fail, and we just need to be running all these experiments around the world um, to figure out how can we have wealthy, thriving societies without burning fossil fuels. So do you think Hawaii has an advantage in that we're... I, I think Hawaii is a great place to learn how to do this. Um, it's, uh, the fossil fuels are 
<laughs> There's no coal trains that go to Honolulu, right? So, well, yeah, yeah. Actually, there is. There are tankers full coal, of coal. Yeah, yeah, coal, yeah. Coal boat. But, yeah, but but it's you know the fossil the fossil fuels here are more expensive than they are yeah. elsewhere because you don't you don't you know you don't have produce much oil here and it you know, much stuff needs to get shipped in. So the fossil fuels are expensive. You have lots of renewables. So it's a great laboratory to learn how to, um, and, and, and there's just resilience benefits to not relying on most of your energy being imported from well, far and, away. And economic benefits. I yeah, mean, and economic benefits. We export benefit. somewhere between five and six billion dollars of our dollars a year out of the islands to pay for fossil fuels to bring in every year. Yeah. So and that's just a pure drain on the economy. And I think, um, you know, uh, do you guys know about um, Elemental Accelerator? Um, see some nodding of heads. It, I, I feel like it's one of the best kept secrets in, in the state. They do the most amazing, innovative stuff around this new economy. They, they have a, the, the new company, they just introduced their new cohort of companies. And this is happening right here in, in Honolulu in Hawaii. And they have a battery powered airplane, nine seat electric airplane that is gonna be doing test runs here that can go 150 miles per hour up to 150, 200 mile range. Um, and you think about, you know, that, that's, this is, if you unleash the power and the creativity yeah. of folks and the economic models around like, let's get this right without fossil fuels as part yeah. of the equation, um, you know, those are those initial first few steps. Because I think sometimes we get so beat up over the whole, you know, there's no way that we can do this. But humans have been figuring yeah. their way out of pinches and mm -hmm. problems for a long, long time. Now, this is the biggest we've ever encountered. Yeah. We're doing it to ourselves, and you know, it's a matter of convenience and all of that. And so it is a big challenge. Yeah. But I, I'm, I am optimistic about the, the, the models and the innovations that are going to come yeah. out um, as a response to the challenge. Yeah. I, I also show a slide which has a picture of um, New York, street scene in New York in 1900, then a street scene in LA in uh, 1950 and a street scene in LA in 2000, then a little box for 2015, it's mm -hmm. gray and it's a big question mark. And the point of showing that is that if you were an engineer or uh, a, a transportation engineer and you went to sleep in uh, 1950 and woke up in 2000 and you looked around, things would look pretty similar. Internal combustion cars driving around, airplanes taking people places, um, you know, electric, big electric generating stations pushing electrons down wires so we have lights. And, you know, a lot of differences, but basically kind of stable. If you went to sleep in 1900, that same Rip Van Winkle, and woke up in 1950, everything's different. You know, used to be kerosene lamps, used to be coal-powered trains driving around. Just everything changed in that 50 years. And we kind of have this presumption that you know, these things are gonna be stable over the next 50. But if you look at all the things, there was 50, 30 years ago, there's no World Wide Web, no phones. I mean, you know, I mean, the things that have changed over 30 years is a, can be a, an amazing amount of technological change. It just hasn't been in the sectors that are most important for dealing with climate change. And that's the thing we need to change over the next couple of decades. And these sorts of experiments are a great way to do it. I have to ask, where do we sit with rail because if there's a concern about sea level rise? Last you two. So there's two ways, well, there's a million ways to think about this problem. We talk about sea level rise a lot. 
sea level rise is the most sort of tangible, publicized piece of climate change. I'm actually less worried about sea level rise than I am about heat. Um, uh, and, and essentially the, the, the comfort and the survivability, because you can't get away from certain things, right? Um, so the way, that, the way that rail was obviously put into a corridor that at the time serviced the most people that it could, and humans love to settle along waterways and rivers. We've done that for thousands of years. So the way that we've naturally developed is along the same place that is, is uh, threatened. As Chip mentioned, <clears throat> there are places where we have invested so much that we are likely to figure out a way to, to stay. Um, and so rail is one of, the, one of the agencies that when the mayor issued his directive around um, climate change and preparation, Hart was one of the agencies that immediately went and took a look at their calculations and raised up the, the rail stations that are online to come next to accommodate the six feet of sea level rise um, in terms of their specs. So it will be the first piece of infrastructure in the city that is actually um, drawn up with some sort of eye and cogniz cognizance of what is um, coming down the pipe. And, and Chip, uh, can you add anything? I mean, I know there, there's some thought that we should move the rail line further in. I don't know, do you feel so, comfortable with where, where it's at? So, I mean, as Josh says, the heart is well aware of the sea level rise challenges. And if we are going to adapt this entire community in place, then getting to the rail stations and getting away from the rail stations is possible. It will involve raising uh, roads, properties, enormously expensive. Um, where will the money come from? I don't know. But far more expensive will be leaving this area. If we wanted to retreat from this area, how are we going to do that? Where are all of us who live here going to go. So adapting in place, as difficult as it appears, um, as a community uh, right now is being led by heart and must um, catch up and continue uh, so that um, we can get to and from the station. So heart is just uh, sort of government leading the way, which is, which is going to happen in a lot of places. If you live up in Haula, um, the coastal road up there is just crumbling away. When DOT decides we're going to do something different with this road, that community is going to respond in kind. So one of the ways this works is government takes care of its business. Certainly you want them to integrate with the community and there needs to be open communication, but it sort of acts as a catalyst and starts the process of the rest of the community um, assimilating the reality of this and figuring out what to do. Okay. Well, I guess the world will be watching to see how that all works, right? <laughs> uh, any final thoughts? I think we're about running out of time. We've got to wrap this up. Um, well, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat how, you know, we just say, oh, well, rail's going to raise six feet and everything's going to be all right. We have electric planes flying around through the air and everything. I mean, I think um, we are in this sort of honeymoon period of we're proud of ourselves because we're in the Paris Agreement and you know, the federal government has left, but we're gonna hold the line. We've made our commitments and pledges. You know, it's gonna get real, real fast when it comes to changing the actual policies that we've relied on. You know, to get this new 50-year vision um, is going to take 
tremendous changes, and it's going to take changing tax policy around fossil fuels. It's going to take, how, you know, get, how do we get people out of cars? Um, and, and rail is a huge part of that. So, you know, how do we design a carbon-free corridor where, and a lot of, you know, millennials are already on this tip. They don't want a car. I mean, they, it's $10,000 a year to have a car just to sit there. Um, and if you can live in an area where you can get, you know, within a mile of rail, um, you have an electric scooter when we get the policies sorted out around that, um, you know, that you don't actually have to have a car. It actually frees you up a ton. Um, but there's going to be this transition period. And I, and I think, you know, having this sort of discussion where people come together and think, ask hard questions, you know, think, you know, sort of through hard solutions, um, and then actually ante up and are willing to change and trade and give a little and, and get a little. Um, you know, one of the things just to finish up is the number one resilience tool is um, social cohesion. Uh, we've seen time and again, whether it was Hurricane Sandy or Katrina or, um, or Fukushima, um, the neighborhoods that bounce back from adversity first are the ones where neighbors know each other and come to each other's aid and have some sort of relationship. It doesn't matter how rich you are, it doesn't matter the infrastructure, it doesn't matter what the, you know, the sea level rise was around you. So this is the, um, the crux of building that, is gatherings like this, the meeting we had last night, where people come together, they talk about it, they talk about the hard facts, and they build a one-to-one -one relationship with each other that comes, kicks in um, as we address this thing over the long run. So I'm really happy to be here tonight and be a part of this. And I think the audience will get a chance to ask questions. Hi. Uh, yes, since uh, you were discussing HART, I was curious about um, how HART is going to use uh, renewable energy to charge the, uh, the HART um, rail um, if they're going to implement renewable energy into the electricity or use solar to power the train? Um, so great question. Uh, it takes a lot of energy to move a train. Um, and unfortunately, that it's more energy than you could produce from solar panels along the, the width of the train. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be powered by renewable energy. Um, you know, by 2045, the entire grid is going to be renewable. And so all the electrons that are powering, and it's an electric train. So that's the, the beauty of it is electric automated. Uh, as the grid gets greener and greener, the train gets greener and greener um, as well. However, I will say, I think HART, now that, you know, they're going to be doing a um, public-private partnership for the last leg of the rail. And um, I know that they are discussing whether they can actually put into that, layer into the public-private partnership, um, renewable energy along the last stretch that could help uh, at least offset some of the energy demands uh, from the train. My name is Bill Metzger, and uh, my question <clears throat> has to do with... Uh, what we all know as a very large and very powerful elephant in the room, and that has to be the fossil fuel corporations. Um, what do you feel needs to be done for the fossil fuel corporations to understand the severity uh, of this problem? What do they need to do to change to help us all? I think they need to be stopped we need to stop subsidizing them. Government subsidies need to end. 
let me also say it's easy to vilify the fossil fuel companies, but as Rob said, they have lifted humanity out of hunter-gatherers uh, with lifetimes of, you know, expected lifetimes of 25 years up to a miraculous modern society. But the shift should have happened in the 1970s. It didn't, unfortunately, and they are a main reason why it didn't. Um, but uh, there are some major uh, fossil fuel companies, I believe Shell, um, which is European-based, you can correct me on some of this, actually uh, is into renewable energy and sees it as part of its future portfolio and is trying to shift in that direction. Um, so that's one comment. I'm sure Rob has some. Well, yeah, well, I'm, first off, uh, they, they all know this. I mean, they've, they've, they've been doing research on climate change for a long time. Um, but um, some of which is quite good. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I mean, a, a simple answer to your question is a price on carbon imposed by the government. Yes. Okay? And so if we had a carbon tax, if we had a cap and trade system, and that rose over time, then the fossil fuel companies would find a different line of business. So, um, Which is that, far too slow a process to have the impact that we need to have, I believe. No. If, if, if there were a carbon tax and it was... Yeah. And, and it were going to a lot of other things need to be done because yeah. but but you know if 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 everybody understood that there was a rising price on carbon and it was going to be um, you know and it was going to rise, you would find a lot of firms finding other lines of business mm. and bringing all the stuff out of their labs and investing. So I mean th that that's a simple answer because you need lots of other things and it's obviously difficult to get that policy in place. But it's just to say that um, uh, if if there are viable alternatives and then pressure that comes from government and consumers to switch to those alternatives. The firms will find a different line of business. My name is Randy Gantz. Uh, I'm a student over at uh, HPU Global Leadership and Sustainab uh, Sustainability Program. And within my uh, research on uh, my thesis regarding the cesspool issue in Kahalu, I was looking at an environmental justice angle and something that I've found in a, in a burning question that I have that I would like uh, to kind of get to is uh, the social equity and social justice of climate ad adaptation. In um, no, specifically Hawaii, we have a native Hawaiian population. Um, obviously, their history is pretty dark uh, here when we think about colonialism and how the Western world has imposed uh, our economic structure, things like that. So within that, um, when we, we consider climate adaptation, we consider these mitigation efforts, um, are we looking at, is anyone looking for social justice, social equity issues to make sure we're not displacing our poor, displacing our individuals who are in lower class, specifically our indigenous populations that have sustainability tied into their culture? I mean, Native Hawaiians didn't need a word for sustainability because it was fundamentally who they are in Aloha Aina. So to take them and where is their voice in this, this kind of this fight within sustainability? So of the three Howley guys up here, um, <laughs> I'll take that one. I yeah, yeah, go for it, yeah. <laughs> um, I, it's such a critical question, right? Because I think when you see what the, you know, the climate movement has traditionally looked like, um, it, it doesn't necessarily look like the, the populations that are most impacted first and worst. Um, you think about even where the petrochemical companies are located and, and where they do their refining and the pollution that comes along with it and who the workers are in Louisiana and Cancer Alley and those places. Um, you know, we're actually, we think we're victims of climate change. We're like, you know, there's been plenty of victims of climate change long before it's hitting, um, you know, more privileged populations. The 
the, the difficulty around, we talked about a carbon tax. The difficulty is, you know, when Mayor Caldwell has gone down and said, I want to raise the gas tax, which is essentially a carbon tax at, that we can impose at the, at the city and county level, there's a ton of pushback against that. Um, fossil fuel prices are high here. Mm -hmm. Folks who have to drive the furthest from the west side bear the, the biggest part of that um, economic model. And so we've got to figure out a way of how do we pull, put equity into this? You know, you can put a carbon tax on, but how do you redistribute it mm -hmm. to folks who need the assistance most? Um, there are some programs, I think California has a program that they funded with their carbon tax that essentially says, you know, we'll cash, your, cash for clunkers kind of thing. If you have an older model gas consuming car and you're under a certain income threshold, we'll essentially subsidize the purchase for a much more efficient car. And when you do that, it's a double win because you're, you're taking the emissions off the road, but you're also putting money right into the pocket of that family that needs it most because, you know, the O&M on an electric car, if anybody doesn't have an electric or hybrid car and can afford it, should go out and get one tomorrow because the O&M on an electric car is about half of what it is on a fossil fuel car. O&M. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, operations and maintenance. So I have an electric car. I've had one for six All years. All things a gas station does too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there's no oil to change. There's, I, yeah. I, mean, I change the wiper blades and the tires in six yeah. years, and that's it. And I plug it in at night. Um, that's a privilege coming from a privileged position. I have a house I can plug into. If you're a renter, you don't necessarily have that. That's the kind of infrastructure that we need to build at the city mm -hmm. and county that opens up the doors to these money-saving things, uh, whether it's solar photovoltaic on rooftops or whether it's electric cars that helps people put money back in their pocket. I, I want to acknowledge your question. I appreciate that question. Every discussion of community resilience that I am part of, I am constantly reminded about the underserved communities. Um, and, and personally, I feel that as long as our natural resources in Hawaii are managed under a continental type of framework, which they currently are, rather than from an indigenous framework, which recognizes the, uh, the uh, recycling and, and uh, natural flow of energy, uh, you know, sort of ridge to reef, um, our natural resources, the resilience of our communities, uh, will never be what it could be if we could somehow uh, recognize the legacy of the indigenous knowledge here in Hawaii. I think it's a very important part of the conversation. I try to bring it up whenever I can, and so do the other climate experts and resource people that I know. So this is not a neglected area, and it's very important for all of you to keep us uh, on our toes and keep reminding us of some of these things. So I appreciate the question, thank you. Next question is on your right. One thing, um, if I could interject here, because I was thinking about the sea level rise and the impact in Kaka'ako, and the state made a big deal of providing land, a land base for the Hawaiians through the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. You know, they can't build condos, residential condos on that side of the road, and, and then, you know, where's their land base if the sea rise uh, happens? You know, what do they have, submerged land? So anyway, just want to throw that out. So, hello, my hello. name is Dyson Chi. Um, as part of the next generation, I want to thank you all for being here. Um, that includes the panelists as well as you guys. Um, so I was wondering about plastic pollutions in this issue, because obviously plastics, yeah, yeah, that water bottle. Yeah. So obviously plastics yeah. come from fossil fuels, and once we're done using them, aside from going into the ocean, we have this great thing, well, supposedly a great thing called H-Power, and doesn't burning things 
emit fossil, f or not fossil fuels, carbon, carbon dioxide yeah. into yeah. the air. And um, if we're, if Hawaii is supposed to be like a global leader in the issue of climate change, is it wise for us to be promoting something where we're taking a fossil fuel, something made out of fossil fuels, burning it, and throwing it into the atmosphere? I was wondering what your input on that would be. <laughs> Do they capture the emissions? They don't. Yeah. yeah. So um, we need to capture the emissions so, at eight well, power. Um, scrubbers, I think, on the. But, so, yeah. <laughs> thank you for your question. Thank yeah. you for being here. It's great to have like youth actually in the room and part of the discussion because we're feeling the energy coming more from youth than anyone else around urgency and addressing this. And I think it, that's one of the things that makes me optimistic about the future is I think there is this wave of really creative folks that are going to come um, push us harder and faster and solve some of this stuff. This gets into a very complicated sort of... Um, question about waste streams and being on an island. Um, we love our blue bins. We recycle. It makes us feel good. Um, the reality is the bottom has fallen out of the recycling market. We are subsidizing to a huge extent, shipping this stuff all the way back to LA and then from LA to uh, Vietnam or China or wherever we'll take it at this point. So we have to think, there's a couple of levels we have to think at. And one is what's the carbon footprint of shipping that stuff to be recycled somewhere else versus burning it at H power. Um, we don't want it, you're right, this should be completely eliminated from the waste stream. If you can get styrofoam, if you can get plastics, if you can get those things out of the waste stream, then if you're burning at H power and you're burning compostable stuff or you're burning paper and you're burning that, it's essentially back to the future, which was the bagasse, you know, sugarcane biofuel plants that we burned before. Um, so that, again, next time that the city council is considering a styrofoam ban or a plastic bag ban or a single-use plastics ban, um, if we had a room this size that showed up there, it would pass. Unfortunately, what happens um, on, on a lot of these issues, whether it's gas tax or a sing, you know um, plastic bag ban or whatever, um, it, there's about a dozen people that show up and they all work at the business that produces the plastic bags or the bottles and you know there's hemming and hawing and then it dies. Mm -hmm. um, so it really is about civic engagement when you, you know, think about the civic square, the civic engagement mm -hmm. part um, can really move some of this stuff across the yep. finish line. Hi, I'm Billy Roll, a marine biologist at UH and my question was just what do each of you think the biggest individual contribution we can make to reducing our personal carbon emissions is? Well, following what Josh has said, I, whenever people ask me that, I said, the first thing you ought to do is vote, okay? There you go. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, if drive, if you've got a car, make it electric. Um, if you have a house, um, you know, put solar on the top. Um, you know, I mean, it sort of depends on where, where your footprint comes from. But try to work your way through your footprint and... Uh, you know, reduce, um, you know, not eat much meat or don't eat meat. I mean, you know, I, I suppose the main thing is you, you can get these great carbon calculators, figure out where your footprint is and figure out where you can, you know, reduce it. So decarbonize your food choices, decarbonize your travel, uh, decarbonize your energy, have smaller families, 
And as a scientist, I know that one of, a part of your business model is flying to conferences. Uh, it's critical. I have tried to eliminate that from my life. I try to fly as little as possible, so fly less. Vote and communicate with other people. Uh, communicate what you know with other people. Just about run out of time. I know there's a few more questions out there, so if you didn't get a chance to ask, not to worry. All of our panelists will be at the reception just across the hall right afterwards. Um, as we're speaking of the reception, I'd like to welcome Jill Takuda to the stage. Uh, please give her a warm welcome so she can tell us what we're going to enjoy tonight. slightly up the steps because I'm not as tall as him, but thank you all of you for joining us tonight. And I can tell you that we've done this uh, series a number of times before, and this is by far the largest, I think, crowd that we've ever had. So give yourselves a hand for caring about yeah, climate change out. and environment. As Jennifer mentioned earlier, you know, we really do take a lot of care in thinking about the entire program, including the reception. Um, and after I looked at this room, we all freaked out about how much food would be across the room. But you know, we talk about climate change scarcity, extreme weather patterns, it's Learn all part of it, right? So we're just, we're just continuing the discussions. But it is very special because, for example, those flowers right there on the table, I know it looks small, it came from Greenpoint Nursery on the Big Island. And they have been hit very hard. We're talking almost $28 million in total losses on the Big Island just from, from VOG and volcanic eruption. You calculate now all the other storms on Maui and Kauai, on Oahu, exponentially larger, you know? So we couldn't even get, for example, papaya from the Big Island, because they're not shipping out in a decent quantity. We couldn't even get tomatoes from Maui, because they had one event and they can't cover more. But we did procure, for example, some basil from farmers that were suffering on Maui, and you'll have them in the salsa <laughs> next door. Papayas in general on all islands are taking a hit. So those are all locally sourced, you'll see the names there. Um, and the kulolo from Kauai and the taramochi. Now if anyone's ever had kulolo from Kauai, you know that stuff's good. Uh, but after the huge rains, they really took a hit as well. So this was really a way for us to give back to those farmers that are on the front line of climate change struggles. So um, take a break, there's a lot of drinks, enjoy the food. And again, remember it was all about the fact that we want to support the people that are out there side by side fighting to make sure that we can feed ourselves sustainably. So thank you again for being here, and I'm going to pass the mic back here. Thank you, Jill. Um, so before we close, I'd like to thank our co-presenter tonight, the Daniel K. Inouye Institute. So a big round of applause for them, please. Also, thank you to our media partner tonight, Hawaii Public Radio. Round of applause for them. Thank you. And finally, a huge thank you to all of you. It's really amazing to see such a big crowd come out tonight for such an important issue. So really grateful to have you all here. And please enjoy the reception. Stick around. Continue the conversation with our panelists on stage. And speaking of them, a big round of applause for them to close out tonight. Thank you so much.